Welcome back to my podcast, Hints and Guesses. This is Kent Dobson. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for being a part of this. Thanks for listening and participating in the ongoing conversation. I've been doing this a few years now, amazingly. And that's what it's felt like over time. I know I'm talking into a mic in on my side porch in Ada, Michigan during COVID-19, September 2020. But I see it as a kind of unfolding and ongoing conversation. And my cat is wanting in here. We're going to uh, see how persistent she is. See if I can ignore her. <laughs> um, but my main point was, it feels like a conversation. And thank you for sending your questions and comments and observations and objections at times. And special thanks to my Patreon supporters who make this thing happen each month. Patreon is kind of like a virtual tip jar, and I'm really, really grateful. So today's podcast is called Why We Need Mentors. And I've been wanting to make a podcast about mentors for a long time, and I, and I, I want it to be a little personal because I'm going to name names, I suppose. <laughs> I want to honor those people that have seemingly stumbled into my life and helped shape who I am, helped pull something out of me that I didn't know was there. And I want to honor them, but I also want to talk about what is a mentor and what are the qualities of a mentor and why we need them now more than ever. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm heading. So um, I hope you'll come with me on this little audio adventure. Speaking of audio adventures, I released a brand new audio book called A Grain of Wheat, The Christ Symbol. It's, all, it's available on my website, kentopson.com. Go there. It's right on the homepage. You can click on it. It costs 10 bucks. It's free to my Patreon supporters, everyone else, 10 bucks. And it's six and a half hours of teaching and conversation around the Christ symbol. For a long time, as I began to kind of leave mainstream evangelical Christianity and some of the, uh, the doctrines and ideas that were sort of non-negotiable, as I sort of said, well, maybe they're negotiable, <laughs> and I have questions about these things. A lot of people said, yes, I, I'm with you. I don't hold the Bible in the same way. I don't hold religion in the same way. I don't hold Christianity in the same way. But what about Jesus? There's something compelling and interesting and intriguing and also sometimes repulsive, and there's resistance around the image of Jesus. And this audiobook is my answer to that. I never knew what to say at first. What, what, but what about Jesus? I was like, I don't know. But after a few years um, of wrestling and doing some writing, and I felt like this thing is an audiobook, actually. And I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. If you're interested in a conversation about Christ from a symbolic point of view. And I take um, the, the unfolding of his life in seven stages and look at those seven stages symbolically. Not to mention the, the meta symbol, a grain of wheat. That's what I think is the very heart of the Christ symbol. So um, anyway, if that interests you at all, check it out and let me know what you think. I hope it, at the, at the very least makes a contribution to 
how we think about Christ now in the 21st century, because things are changing. Okay, with that kind of advertisement out of the way, let's let's buckle down and talk about mentors and why we need them. So I want to try to answer the question very succinctly at first, why we need mentors. And then I'm going to uh, read a little bit from the Odyssey and and go a little deeper into the conversation. So the short answer to the question, why we need mentors, is that we are imitators by evolutionary design. That's what we do as human beings. We imitate. It is part of our survival strategy. In fact, um, it's, it's at the very center of adaptation. The capacity to adapt to one's environment through various means of imitation. And you see this with little children. You see this with babies. You see this with when it comes to our most basic survival instincts. And interestingly enough, what I might call our social survival instincts. Because it's not, it's not enough just food, shelter, um, clothing, you know, very, very basic needs. It's not enough because we're social creatures. And, and part of adapting consciously is to adapt to, to the social uh, milieu or matrix or context that we find ourselves in. We cannot help it. We end up imitating who we are around. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying that's the way it is. Now, of course, you've heard me complain on this podcast before that um, the capacity to imitate at a certain point can become, what's the right word for it? Um, compulsive. And it begins to function much like, like a sub-personality. And, or a complex might be the right way to say it. And, and the complex is that of the conformist. So I'm, I'm not here saying we're imitators by nature. We're all going to become conformists. I'm saying we all do it to a certain degree. And it, it also begins to answer the question, how do we learn? Well, in part, the answer to that is we learn by imitation. That's at the very heart of language. What else is language than the capacity to imitate? So... Um, that begins to answer the question why we need mentors. Mentors are worth imitating, <laughs> might be the simplest way of saying it. Um, it reminds me of a line from Abraham Heschel. Abraham Heschel says, the teacher is the book the student reads. So here he's, he's trying to probe around in the archetypal image of, of mentor. The teacher is the book the student reads, which, by the way, makes the online virtual learning experience uh, challenging because if the student is really reading the teacher as much as whatever kind of information that teacher uh, might be passing on and we could even say from Heschel's point of view more importantly they're reading the teacher than even in the, the information how well can you read a teacher in the virtual format it's it's a worthwhile question to at least wrestle with um, here's another line to kind of answer the question of why we need mentors. So this comes from James Finley, and I might butcher the quote a little bit because I'm going from memory, but he says something like, find your practice and begin, or find your practice and practice, <laughs> find your community and enter, and number three, find your teacher and learn, 
or find your teacher and study or find your teacher and follow, something like that. And he's summarizing, in a way, a spiritual life. How do I begin? Where should I begin? Well, find a practice, find a community, and find a teacher. The question is, how do you find a teacher? And that is, that's where things get kind of interesting when it comes to mentor. I'm not exactly sure if it's um, the kind of thing where you sit down, you know, you make a list of potential mentors and you track them down. I don't really think that's the way it works for most of us. Um, but to bring some consciousness to, okay, this person is more than something interesting to me. They're a kind of teacher in my life. And what does it look like to listen, you know? Interestingly enough, when, when um, I think this is in the story of the transfiguration of, of Christ, uh, there's a voice from heaven. In, in, in rabbinic Judaism, it's called the bat kol, the daughter voice of God. And, it, and the voice says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. That's a very interesting change from the bat kol, the daughter voice that comes at the beginning during the baptism story, if you're familiar with that. But listen. Now, why would you listen? Because um, he's a kind of teacher and even a kind of mentor. Okay. Um, and maybe here's the final reason why we need mentors. And it's very simple because it's hard to grow up. It's really, really hard to grow up. And we live in a pathologically adolescent culture that is hell-bent on not growing up. It's hell-bent on doubling down on adolescent, psychologically adolescent concerns like identity and social status and um, my group versus that group, junior high playground stuff. It's a pathologically adolescent culture that... Um, is having a hard time growing up. And I'm not really picking on adolescents. They're also having a hard time growing up for sure. But, you know, I'm in my 40s. And I know many 40-year-olds that are having just as hard a time growing up out of a kind of 19-year-old psychic stuck place. So mentors help. They help pull us out of the vortex that wants to keep us uh, immature from a psycho-spiritual point of view. So I, I've tried to, I'm trying to answer the question right from the beginning as to why we need them. Okay, now let's turn to the Odyssey. I have had a very strange relationship with this book. In fact, I'll come to it in a second, but maybe it's worth saying the very first maybe awakening to a kind of mentor which I was not conscious of at the time, and that's maybe worth saying, one is not always conscious of the mentors that enter uh, one's life. That was certainly true in my case. But my high school English teacher, which I had several classes with, was a kind of mentor, especially when it comes to literature and poetry. She, there, there was something about her passion for I guess I probably would have said depth at the time, or I might may not have been been able to even articulate. Maybe I was just attracted to her passion for literature and and poems. And I remember she showed us Dead Poet Society, which is an amazing film, timeless. Everyone should watch it. Um, Robin Williams is just, I mean, the the pinnacle of his. Uh, 
acting abilities in that film. It's just, it's a remarkable film. It's terribly sad, as you know, if you've seen it. But the fact that young people, young boys in this case, and I was just a, a high schooler when I saw it, would get excited about meaning and depth and literature and, and the big questions, I guess, started to awaken something within me. And so maybe it was a kind of brush against um, something that was calling to me already in high school. When I went to college, I, <laughs> I started off as a sports management major. And by the way, I tend to be somewhat personal in this podcast, if I didn't say that before. Uh, I want to talk about some mentors in my, in my own life. But anyway, when I got to, when I got to college, um, I was a sports management major, largely because I could imagine working at a ski resort, which is what I really wanted to do. So my parents wanted me to go, go to college, and I wanted to ski. So I thought, well, maybe I can work at a ski resort. <laughs> so that's why I chose sports management. All the while... Um, you know, the classes that were interesting to me were, were English classes. And, and it took me a while, but I finally sort of succumbed to the pull and changed my major to English. It also helped that my, this girl I was really into, who later became my girlfriend and later my wife, was also an English major. So I'm not going to lie, that was part of it. But uh, nevertheless... When I was maybe a sophomore, I took a world literature class. I'm coming to the Odyssey here. And I had never read any world literature. In fact, I went to a Christian school, K through fifth grade, and then a public school, sixth through twelfth uh, grade. And for some reason, I missed I missed it. I never read any world literature. I read some English literature, but not world literature, and never any myths, not a single myth, which is so funny because I'm so into them now. I had no exposure to them. In fact, um, you know, in the background, I would have thought when I was a kid something like, oh, Zeus, and and that's probably all I knew was Zeus. Those are like the pagan gods and, um, you know, pretty much equivalent to demons and the devil and should be avoided in those Greeks who didn't worship the one true God and so forth and so on. So I had some resistance to it. But anyway, I took this world literature class, maybe my sophomore year of, of college, and I was not prone to go to class too often. And I went to class one day and I said to my not yet girlfriend, but someday girlfriend, <laughs> what are they passing out? And she said, the test. I'm like, on what? She said, mythology. I hadn't read any of the um, assignments yet. I, oh, believe me, I was planning on it, but I hadn't read anything. So I took the test and I got a 3%. This is a college course, all right? I got a 3%. And I mean, it was a bit humiliating, but you know, I, I, I uh, was playing it off like, like, that was like, like, like that was my plan the whole time that I don't care. But I did care. So when I switched my major... I, got, I ended up getting a C in that class, and you can't get a C in any of your um, core classes that are connected to your major. So when I switched, I had to retake it. So I took world literature again with the same professor as an independent study, and she said, what we're going to do all semester is read the Odyssey. And, um, and you just come to my office, we talk about it, and then you write papers. Fine. What happened to me is that I got into it. And 
there were moments when I felt like, like Alice in Wonderland, that I fell down the rabbit hole. What is this world that I'm encountering that is unfamiliar to me? The Odyssey is, is you know, I was, I'm pretty familiar with the Bible, but it's so much different in its language and its tone and, and um, in the images and so forth and so on. Um, it felt like a brand new territory. And I fell down the rabbit hole. And, and, and maybe even in, in, hindsight, in hindsight, I would say now, having to read it helped change the, the course of my life. I would have never said that at the time. And it was, it's probably only in rediscovering mythology and, and even Carl Jung <laughs> that, I've been, that I'm able to, to see this kind of thread that was there all along. But nevertheless, The Odyssey was an important book kind of in my own um, very, very, very slow, late blooming kind of awakening. So here's what I want to say about The Odyssey. The Odyssey begins not with Odysseus, but with Telemachus, his son. And that's a very, very interesting observation. You would think a book called The Odyssey would be about the main character, Odysseus, whose name is connected to journey and adventure itself, and we're going to follow his adventures. But that's not the place where Homer starts. The place is with Telemachus his son. It begins with the question of the next generation. That is important. That tells you that this book is not just about privatized, if you want to turn it into kind of a a symbol here, a privatized journey or a privatized hero's journey. It's about something larger. It's about the next generation. It's about, it's about, um, the, the, the oh, what's the right way to say it? It's about the question, will the next generation take their place in the world? And how will they take their place in the world? That's how the Odyssey begins. So imagine this, Odysseus has been off to war. He's gone, out of sight, out of mind, and his kingdom is beginning to fall to ruin. And Odysseus's wife is being courted by all these suitors. And the suitors have intentions that suitors have. They want to marry her and they wine and dine and, they're, and they're, they're draining the resources of the kingdom slowly. And Telemachus is the bitter son who stayed home. And he's not yet a man and he's not a boy. He's in between. He's in, by the way, in antiquity, they really didn't have adolescence. But if it was, it was a very brief window. But he's in that brief window. He's not yet a man and he's not a boy, and he's bitter. He's kind of like, like in the prodigal son, he's like the son who stays home. You've ha- you have the one son that goes off and squanders, but you have the son that stays home and grows bitter. That's Telemachus. And he's complaining about the suitors, but he's not a king. And he's not acting like a king. He's not acting like a warrior. He's not acting like a defender of, of the territory, the capacities that he has as potential inside of him. He's acting like a whiny teenager. And, um, and the question is, will he grow up or will his father be the one of legend, you know, and he'll just remain forever in the shadow. I think about, um, yeah, I think about all this, the, the children of famous people, you know, the children of famous people who, 
who are out in Hollywood or whatever, and they have their bills paid, but they're up under the shadow of Odysseus, so to speak. And what will happen? What will happen? Will they grow into their potential? That's the question. That's how the Odyssey begins. And right at the beginning, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and this is a major Greek idea and also an idea in the Bible that wisdom is feminine. That's in the in Proverbs and, um, and in rabbinic literature. And wisdom is feminine. It's the feminine side of God. And Athena comes in and begins to, she's always shape-shifting and changing form and begins to have a conversation with Telemachus. She's interested in Telemachus's future. And I want to um, maybe read you a couple things that Athena says to Telemachus. She says, um, I offer sound advice, if you'll listen. Um, take the best ship and go and get news of your long-absent father. So quit whining at home. Go and find out. She says, maybe perhaps some, someone will tell you what happened to him or you'll get some rumor from Zeus or um, something like that. Go and find your father. That's what she's saying. If your father is alive and coming home, then, worn as you are, you might endure for one year more. So if you get news that he's on the way home, you might have the strength to endure until he gets here. Um, and then she says, But if you hear that he is dead, no longer with the living, then at once return to your own native land and pile his mound and pay the funeral rites and full and many, as are due, and you shall give your mother to a husband. Come home and uh, live into your full potential. Bury your father and move on with your life. So that's some powerful wisdom-oriented advice. But behind that is a, are a couple clues. Like the major clue is you got to leave home. Now, I've made a big deal about this in my book, Bitten by a Camel, and I'm about to make an even bigger deal in my next book which is uh, rooted in the sign of Jonah that I've been working on. So um, leaving home is absolutely essential. And this is what she's saying to Telemachus. You're going to get stuck here forever. Leave. Go find out if your father is alive or if he's dead. If he's alive, then maybe you'll have the strength to keep going. And then when he returns, you know, she doesn't exactly say what will happen, but you'll be able to sort it out. If he's dead, then bury him and move on. And I, there's something powerful about that. Bury your father and then move on and do what needs to be done. Then she also tells him she, that he needs to confront the suitors and, and all this kind of stuff. So, um, all right, that's Athena entering the very beginning of the story. Now, the next scene is very interesting. So Telemachus is all torn up again about the suitors, and now he knows he, he ought to leave home, and, and he's walking along the beach, which is kind of that threshold space between his native land and the unknown. And he's walking on the beach, and I'm imagining he's feeling that pull, both the pull, the call to the unknown, to the zone unknown, as Joseph Campbell would call it, or the pull back home to be near his mother and to stay put and maybe to continue in, the, in his kind of victim identification. Woe is me. Everybody's draining the kingdom. These suitors are ill-suited to be my, my uh, um, father, father-in-law, not father-in-law, uh, stepfather, whatever. Um, so he's, he's in that threshold space. And at this point, 
mentor enters the story. So mentor, an old man, and it's a little bit unclear in the text, is, is, is it Athena in the form of mentor? Is mentor down there and sort of embodied by Athena? But it tells you a little bit about um, how the ancients thought about about being filled with with the spirit of something. And that's kind of like this. So Mentor shows up. He's an old man. He knows Odysseus. He knew him before he went off to war, but he was too old to go off to war. So he's, he's old. He's wise. He's an elder. And maybe that's an observation that we can go ahead and make. A mentor is an elder of sorts. And I'll, maybe I'll define that in a second. But um, Mentor's on the beach, filled in the power and the spirit of Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And he says something similar. He says, time to go. Time to go, Telemachus. And he says, I'll go with you. And, um, and here are a couple of like sort of uh, devastating lines here. Telemachus, henceforth you shall not be a base man nor foolish. If, it, if in you stirs the brave soul of your father and you like him can give effect to deed and word. So I'll, I'll try to interpret that because the language is a little, little archaic here, the translation is. He's saying, you have something more in you than foolishness and your most base instincts, but that's the way you're acting. And if you really have the soul of your father, which think about it more like recovering the deeper father, um, uh, healthy masculine archetype, maybe that's what it means, then you can live into this. Um, and then he says, if you are no son of him and Penelope, in other words, maybe you feel like you're an orphan and that's not really your dad and this is not really your mom, then I am hopeless of your gaining what you seek. Hmm. Few sons are like their fathers. Most are worse. Few better. And that's where I want to pause. So most are worse and only a few are better. Now, this is mentor acting like a mentor, saying, you have potential. And you have potential to go in either direction. You have the capacity to fail to live into the fullness of your being, the true son of Penelope and Odysseus. And you have the capacity to live a base and foolish life. What are you going to do? Now, I'll go with you for a while. I'll get into the boat. I'll help you gather. And he says, get prepared. Like, be prepared to be gone for a year. Get a bunch of wine. Get a bunch of uh, dried fish or meat or whatever he says. Um, and I'll meet you in the harbor and we'll set out. And hopefully the gods and the winds will blow in our favor. So Mentor says some very challenging things and then promises to go with him, at least for a little while, as much as he's able as an old man. So why am I reading this? Because that's where the whole idea of mentor is born. Now, I know other ancient cultures and traditions had mentor-like figures. You know, you have such a thing in Buddhism. You have such a thing in, in Hinduism. Those are just a couple of religions that are popping into my mind. You have such a thing in, in of course, in the Judea in, in Judaism, um, and of course with Christianity, you have you have Jesus as a kind of mentor figure, a kind of. Um, Someone who's willing to journey alongside. The word, though, comes from this story, comes from the Odyssey, and gives birth, uh, or gives us an image, probably doesn't give birth, gives us an image with, to help us um, 
contemplate and ponder why we need mentors in the difficult process of growing up. So let me make some um, observations or patterns that mentors seem to embody or characteristics, something like that. Uh, and, and I'll give you some examples kind of as we go along. So the very first thing that comes right out of the story is that a mentor sees the potential, what someone could be, maybe sees beneath the facade. If you want to use psychological language, sees behind the persona and behind the ego behind the face you show the world and behind who you think you are, the mentor peers into that and sees something of the soul's aim, the, the thread of that is the meaning of your life. <laughs> and maybe we could even say believes in such a thing, believes in your own potential when you don't. Now, they might not be so obvious about it, but um, it may be far more subtle. But that, I think is a non-negotiable characteristic of, of a mentor, that they see one's potential, the you that you could be. Now, maybe it's also worth saying that if a mentor doesn't want you to become you, then they're not a mentor, okay? Let me say that again. If a mentor is not really interested in your wild and unique potential and possibility, they're not really a mentor. If they're, if they're interested in you becoming like them, that's not a mentor. That's just, you know, blind capitulation. That's imitation gone too far. Where um, I'm just trying to be like someone that I'm not. And I've got a great rabbinic story for that. Sort of hang on for that. Uh, I'll, I'll wait until the end to share this interesting rabbinic story about it. So, um, yeah, a mentor sees potential. And that gives us another clue. So um, the capacity to see potential maybe is another word or another definition for an elder. So the way I think about elders, first of all, the, the name itself it clues you in. These are people who have gone through some life. All right, that they've lived a while. They've they've seen a few things, <laughs> um, and they they have some self awareness here. They probably know a fair amount of their own dark side, and they're not living with a kind of um, fantasy about who they are in the world. There's a certain amount of humility. That's an elder, and and an el an elder sees the potential in things and begins to orient his or her life around the growing of that potential. So let me say that in another way. An elder is self-sacrificial. An elder is self-sacrificial. They, they have oriented now. They, see, the survival dance and, and the initial difficulties of getting a job and raising a family and can I make it, they've waned a bit. And instead of just sort of kicking back and saying, now I can play golf until I die, the elder says, what if I turned my entire attention toward the next generation, toward, toward potentiality in a self-sacrificial 
sense, like the Bodhisattva vow, refusing enlightenment until all sentient beings are enlightenment. Only an elder would do something like that. Say, no, no, this isn't about me and my privatized uh, enlightenment, or this isn't about me and my privatized um, uh, retirement. This is about the next generation, and you can even expand out from there. It's about the well-being of the community. It's about the well-being of the earth. It's about the well-being of the cosmos, if you want to take it all the way out. That's an elder. That, the orientation is towards self-sacrifice. And you don't see that. I mean, even the way uh, sometimes um, we use it in church world, you know, you know, church boards have elders. You know? So if you have an elder on your church board that's jockeying to be the chair, even if they're not admitting it, they're, they want, they're wanting to be the chair and sort of um, strong arm their, their, the way they think things should go, um, that's not an elder by definition. That's not orienting one's life around giving oneself away even to the point of death for the well-being of the greater community and of the next generation. You know, that's just jockeying for power. So, okay. Um, that gives you a clue, I think, of where Mentor down on the beach with Telemachus is coming from. I'll help you as much as I can, but you got you, you have to do this. I can't do it for you. Go find out if your father is dead. Go find out if you're really the son of Penelope and Odysseus. Go find out if, um, if you're really satisfied uh, living half a life. Or if you want to live um, from a place of courage and bravery and um, maybe soul orientation, go find out. So he's sort of saying, I'll go with you, and also I can't do it for you at the same time. <laughs> so, um, all right, Num maybe next point here. They make it hard. <laughs> they make it hard. It's not easy. They... Nothing about, classically, the archetype of having a mentor is easy. Think about Jesus. I mean, nothing about Jesus' life with the disciples is easy. He doesn't explain things. He doesn't tell them what, what he's up to. He makes them do stuff um, when they're not ready. Uh, he sometimes just flees the scene and they can't even find him. Nothing about it is easy. You'd think it'd be like, hey, you know, Jesus, can't you build them up? You know, encourage them, help a brother out. You know, maybe they need little buttons that says, I am a special disciple of Jesus. No, everything about it is like um, difficulty. And like, if you really want this, um, then then you're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to fight for it. I remember learning that as a teacher, you know. Um, I have to admit, when I first became a teacher, it's, this is actually hard to admit, I wanted to be liked by the students, you know. I want to be the cool teacher. I wouldn't have said that. I would have said I'm doing the opposite, which tells you that's probably what I was doing. And and I had a really wise principal, mentor, say say to me in, in a very... Um, kind but direct way don't be easy on your kids um, set the bar high um, because they will rise to it do you want to be a teacher that sets the bar low and is liked or do you want to be a teacher that sets the bar high and is difficult and gains a kind of honor that's sort of the gist of what he said to me and it, it occurred to me yeah I want to I want I want to set the bar high because in setting the bar high for them, I was setting the bar high for me. 
and I was pretty immature, you know, never taught before in a classroom and, and, you know, going into high school classrooms, like being, you know, thrown to the lions. Um, so anyway, they make it difficult. They make it hard. They make it challenging. So, um, just thinking about my own, some mentors that have, that have come into my own life, uh, two are coming to mind right now. So when I was in college, I had a professor named uh, Linda Nell, and she, was, she taught drama and theater and musical theater. And she had a kind of vibrancy that was kind of wild and unpredictable and attractive. And she would sort of sit on her desk and she wore the wrong color lipstick and she would sometimes do wild and unpredictable things in class. And, and the energy, talk about the Heschel quote, the teacher is the book the student reads, is what was attractive to me as a high school, I mean, as a, as a college student. And more than that, even her specific passions, I started to become interested in, like theater. So I started writing little plays and thinking about like just beginning to ponder, uh, could I write plays? Is that something that that I have the capacity for? And she kind of encouraged it and discouraged it and tried to make it seem like it was really hard because it is. Um, and we kind of had this back and forth relationship and I started taking all kinds of classes that she had and I tried out for one of her, her plays and I thought about myself as being, you know, um, I don't know that I... Even though I've never done a play in my life, I'm going to try out for the star role, you know, and I got it. And it was an absolute nightmare. She was, um, in a way, um, cruel <laughs> to me, but cruel because she wanted the best. And, and she did not like my performance. Even when it was all said and done, she was still wanting to go with someone else. She, at, at one point she told me, you're done. I'm going to, I'm going to, this was like a few days before the play opened. I'm going to go with someone else that, that I know that's not even from this school. Cause I'm so dissatisfied with your performance and I'm, I'm not going to put on a play. I mean, this was just, no one had ever treated me this way. I remember too, um, I wanted to get a drama minor, but they dropped it at Liberty university along with all the other great things like philosophy and art. And they just, you know how these schools, private schools go, uh, as soon as the budget gets tight, they, they drop all the humanities. So, um, I could get a drama endorsement <laughs> and in order to do so, I had to do an independent study. So I wanted to do an independent study with her, um, on playwriting. So the project was to write and produce my own one act play. And we met a few times at her house and, and at the office, kind of working out some basic ideas. And, and finally, I had an idea, and I, I wrote maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes of a play. And I was like, I got it. I nailed it. I kind of know what I'm doing. And she read it and looked at me and said, this is absolute trash. I don't even know what this is. This is not a play. If this is what you're going to write, this is the wrong class for you, and we might as well drop it right now. And she gave me no clue. She just like as to what to do next. No like pumping me up. No like, hey, there's one little line here. Just this is utter trash. That's what I mean about mentors being hard. Because my guess is what they see or what they wonder about is potential. Not what's right in front of them. 
So either, in this case, I don't really have the potential, and let's just call a spade a spade, or I do, and unless I'm pushed right to the brink and I crack, I'm never going to find it. And she was hell-bent on, on pushing me all the way. And at no point did she ever let off the gas. Even when I wrote, wrote the play, got the actors, practiced it, produced it in front of a live audience, and took questions at, afterwards. So the play is all done. I'm sitting there on stage. Let's bring up the playwright. Let's, let's, you can ask whatever question you want. She came out swinging. For me, I'm, you know, like let the audience come out swinging. She just was coming after me. I don't know what I would say about that that I learned, but I would say something like, if I'm going to grow up, it's going to be hard. If I'm going to to uncover and re- recover, uncover some potential here, the path is hard. And I wouldn't have said that consciously. You know, I can only say that in hindsight. It felt like hell at the time, and I felt unfair, and it felt like, why? what are you doing to me? But the, see, that's what I'm saying about the mentor being more interested in, in potential. Um, what else? might I say, as I was speaking just now, I remembered when I got to college, um, I, excuse me, when I got to graduate school, my very first paper, you know, I'm an English major, I think I can write, my, my very first paper I handed in, um, this was for a class on, um, I think, like, history of the Old Testament or something like that. Um, I can't remember the, the title of the the class it was a pretty challenging class. The, the professor said to me, I don't know where you went to undergraduate, but this is not writing. That's what he told me. <laughs> Once again, potential. So now I'm using academic examples, but I want to encourage you to think about the people that have come into your life that have made the path difficult. The older, potentially wiser people who you're attracted to in some way, but are making the path challenging, that are making the path difficult. I think this is an example of the mentor archetype here. I'll give you one more. Um, well, let me add something here about the, the attraction dynamic. So if you listen to my podcast a while back about the shadow, so the shadow is what we don't know about ourselves. And if accused, we would, false, we would, we would deny. That's a line from Bill Plotkin. What we don't know about ourselves, and if accused, we would flatly deny. So it's the hidden aspects of ourselves. And the shadow is, of course, the dark things that we don't, don't really know anything about and don't want to get near, but also the golden threads, those seeds of genius, those threads of potentiality that if we were to live fully out in the world, it might get us into real trouble or we might not be socially accepted or or we might be condemned by our family, or we might be misunderstood, or the list goes on and on and on. So in other words, the shadow has a sinister dark um, dimension, and it has a golden dimension, a golden, we call these golden projections in depth psychology. So with the mentors, there's something like a golden projection happening. It's like, ooh, the energy, the attraction, like, wow, she is the kind of teacher I would want to be if I was a teacher. She is the kind of director I would want to be if I was a director. She was the kind of writer I would want to be if I were a writer. That's that, that I'm pretty sure I could never live up to this, but I want to be near it. That's how all projection begins. We project onto the other what we can't own, and we want to be near it. And we could say, there's nothing wrong with that. So when you're thinking about your own life, 
where are the golden projections? You know, who, who has entered the beach of your life, wandered down, and all of a sudden you're like, there's something about this person and I just want to be near it. I'm pretty sure I could never be like this, but I want to be near it. Oftentimes what's happening is a bit of that golden projection. And, um, and the, the, the ultimate question, which I'll come to in, in a little bit, is will you live into your, your way of inhabiting the energy that you think you see in the other? That's the question is something like that. How will you embody this? Not how will I get near this so I don't have to embody it. <laughs> that's, but that's how it begins in any case. If I could take every class with Linda Nell, if I could take every English class with my high school English uh, professor, which I did, or uh, teacher, which I did, um, then I would be, I would be near, near enough to it and kind of uh, like, like, being in the ring of energy around it, but not actually having to do much of it myself. That's how it begins, we could say. So this also happened to me with a guy named Ray Vanderlaan. So when I was um, did the music at Mars Hill, uh, where I was the pastor, but before that I did the music, and um, there I was trucking along. I want to say something about music now. It's just uh, occurring to me, so give me a few minutes. Um, there... There I am trekking along doing the music, and somebody came up to me and said, would you like to come on a trip to Israel? We, we've already paid for it, but some friends of ours, I think family, had dropped out, and we have two spots totally paid for. Would you like to come to Israel? My wife and I uh, didn't have any kids at the time. We thought, yes, we want to go to Israel. So we went, and they told us, we're going with a guy named Ray Vanderlaan. Now, I'd heard the name, but that's about it. So Ray Vanderlaan is a bit of a local celebrity here in West Michigan. He's led literally like, you know, hundreds of trips to Israel. And he kind of got, you know, famous in Christian circles by making a series of DVDs for Focus on the Family, filmed in Israel, kind of like little lessons about um, uh, Bible stories. And, um, and he's a teacher at Holland Christian, which is in Holland, Michigan. So anyway, um, I didn't know anything about him. And, but we went to a prep meeting. And honestly, I'd never heard anybody talk like this. Never in my life. Not about the Bible. Not with such enthusiasm. Not with such passion. And also, just in term, just on a pure factual basis, um, Raven Anilon is really into cultural context stuff. And I knew nothing. I knew nothing about cultural context. And my very first trip to Israel, that is what I would say, was my overwhelming experience. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Maybe you could even say um, of the mentor-mentee dynamic, there's something like that. Wow, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, and to be around this mentor is to be a little closer to some wisdom, to Athena, to, to the transcendent feminine aspect of, of, of wisdom that transcends any personality you know, we could say, and I want to be near it. So um, that was my experience. I don't know what I'm talking about. And partway through the trip, he said to me, we'd never met before. He knew I was, you know, a worship pastor. But beyond that, um, I don't think he really knew anything about me. He said, when you ought to think about doing this, I'm like doing what? Doing trips like this. I'm looking for people. I've been, that's what he said. I've been looking for people and you're the right kind of person. Now, I'm, I'm in the middle of a trip, and everybody loves this guy. I mean, it's like everything he says is gold, and 
and he's passionate and he yells and he throws his hat down and he makes a big scene and he sort of equates spiritual growth with with just enthusiasm and passion and if you're not passionate you're not serious you know and all this kind of stuff and it, you know that kind of worked for me it didn't work for other people but most of the people on the trip were like this guy's unbelievable and now imagine he comes to me i'm sitting at a table in a at a at a um, at a kibbutz called Nof Ginosar, and he says, you ought to do this. And I felt good, you know, I'm like, ooh, you know, I felt that little puff of, um, of, yeah, maybe I've got something, even though I have no idea what I'm talking about. And we start a conversation about it. He's like, yeah, but the thing is, you've got to live in Israel, you know. Um, this is not about you. This is what he says right from the beginning. This is not about um, repeating what I said on this trip. If you're interested, you have to move to Israel and go on your own path of study, and then we can talk. See, that's what I mean about making it difficult. It wasn't, come and learn from me. I'm going to tell you everything to say. I'm going to give you a chance to do it. He basically said, come with me and at the same time, find your own path. And I, I promise you, he repeated this refrain. Eventually, that's exactly what I did. I moved to Israel with my wife and kids. I had kids by then. And I set on my own course of study and, and I began leading trips. And, and I, you know, I have to be honest when I first started teaching in a public way about the Bible and eventually in Israel, I at first repeated the lines I heard from Ray Vandalon. That's what I did. Even though he told me, don't do it. That's what I did. I went and repeated the same things. And then I would change Maybe it grew where I changed little bits and pieces. The essence is the same, but I'm going to like use my own words. Like, like, like when I was in high school, I, you know, you, you copy someone's homework. Yes, I did that in high school. Um, and I would like change one word and be like, no, I seriously had this totally completely original thought here, you know, by changing one word. Um, and then eventually I started giving credit. I went through this whole phase where I have to give credit, you know, so I would say it, but I would say as, Ray Vanillon says, or as Rabbi so-and-so says, or whatever, the context, until I reached the end of that, and the questions just started bearing down on me, which was, how am I going to find my own way here? What do I think? Um, having studied, having learned, having been pushed through the gauntlet here, what's mine to say? And that is felt like a major passage for me, to to break up with. And that's what happened in a way with Ray Vanderlaan. I had to break up. I had to say enough. Um, I even had to find points of disagreement like, no, no, I read the scholarship. That's not exactly what it says. And I, I beg to differ. That's just the nature of scholarship, period, especially with biblical stuff. Um, nobody agrees. <laughs> so anyway, there had to be a point of breaking up. And I, I want to add that as a dimension of the mentor-mentee dynamic. You get to a point where you have to break up. The Buddhists call it slapping the master. If you are still up under the wing of some mentor and feel like you can't get out from underneath it, otherwise you won't be accepted, time to slap the master. Say, I disagree with you. I don't like you. I hate you. I reject you. Whatever it takes, slap the master right in the face and walk out. Then you'll find out just how much he or she helped shape and call forth from within you what is yours to carry. Because that's ultimately what a good mentor sees. They see your wild potential. But only you can live into that. 
If you just go around repeating stuff all the time, then that's all you are. Some kind of clone, some kind of imitator, some kind of conformist, some kind of capitulation takes place. So, um, okay, this podcast is getting long. I don't care. I'm, I've got a, a few more things. So the other thing I, I want to say about the mentor dynamic is that there's a kind of quietness about it. Sometimes maybe it can feel obvious. This is my mentor, so-and-so. But I imagine much of the time it's not like that. Like, and I get that from the Telemachus story because he's meeting a guy on the beach named Mentor. He's not meeting a mentor. He's meeting Mentor, <laughs> who's going to go with him, who is speaking in the, in the spirit of Athena. So there's a hidden dimension. The wisdom is hidden in there. You might not even know it's happening. That's what I'm saying. You might not even know it's happening. Maybe it's true from the other way around. I don't know for sure, but maybe for the mentor, the mentor is not always aware of what's happening. It's like something is happening that's quiet and hidden, which I think brings me to um, a close friend and mentor named Scott Baker. And Scott Baker, I bumped into, like on the beach, in the Odyssey, when I was in college. I went to Liberty University, as I said before, and you were required to go to church. <laughs> oh man, I can tell you a lot about Liberty. And Liberty is making the news lately. Dang. Oh man. So anyway, um, you were required to go to church and, and now people like me would sometimes just sign out, which you had to do, from your dorm and say you're going to a church off campus and then go do whatever you wanted. But a friend of mine who was a philosophy um, major at a different uh, university in town, Lynchburg College, <clears throat> was a part of this, this church called Grace. He said, you got to come. It's awesome. So I started going on a Sunday morning and barely making it, of course, trying to, to sleep in. And the, on the very first Sunday, I had an experience that was something like this. Huh, what the heck is this music? And, and who is that music leader? Who is that worship pastor? Like, he had a beard. He was kind of gruff. He looked like, you know, like kind of a ripped Tom Petty who lives in the forest, you know, I don't know. Tom Petty is probably isn't the right way to say it. Um, but there was something about his energy and the songs. I was like, God, and I, I do not like worship music. I do not like church music, most of it. And so I had every reason to hate it, just despise sitting there and singing these dumb songs with terrible melodies and like in this kind of fake, sentimental, oh, I really mean this kind of posture, like, oof, gross. But... Scott didn't have that energy at all. He sat up there and banged stuff out on the guitar, and I'd never heard these songs. And I learned later, they're his songs. He just wrote them. And many of them were just lines taken straight from the Bible, like a psalm or, or a passage, and with very little wordsmithing, just here's the passage, set to music. And, and it kind of had, first of all, the melodies were great, and I found myself like humming these songs during the week. And and I was like, and I went for the music. Usually I would 
you know, show up to church and make, make sure I miss all the music and just get the teaching. Um, but not, not a grace. And what happened is that um, Scott had a kind of quiet authority to him. Like, and I just wanted to be near him. And we became friends. I never had him as a teacher. He was a professor at Liberty, but I never had him as a teacher. I just had this relationship that that started to evolve over time at Grace. And um, and my, my roommate then joined the worship team. I never did. He played the bass. I wasn't very good at, um, I was horrible at the guitar. And I'm not that great at singing. But I just, I, I love to be around him and I love to be around um, the music. And... And more than that, and this comes back to one of my points, the teacher is the book the student reads. There was something about the twinkle in his eye, the humor, the lightness, and the seriousness that that embodied wisdom for me. I would have even said at the time, he's a wise person. And he cracked a little door open into his life for me and my roommate, um, and, and a few other people that were floating around in these Lynchburg circles. And, and I had no idea at the time how much that would change my life and how deep the friendship would go. And um, when I uh, graduated and eventually left Virginia and moved to Michigan because Rob Bell um, was starting Mars Hill and Rob Bell worked for my dad and and I had this feeling, hey, I ought to be up there. Maybe I could help out. And, and, and I was kind of looking for some aim and some direction. And in my life, I was quite lost after graduating. I finally graduated, and I thought, now I need to go to school. And I, don't, and I need to go to school for something that's going to pay bills, not English, not an English major. So um, I was a bit lost, and I moved to Michigan. And, and I asked Scott, almost like on a, on a kind of whim, Hey, would it be all right if I photocopied some of these songs? I just love these songs so much. And I don't know, I'm just going to take them with me and maybe like, maybe they'll be used in some way. I have no idea. It's like, it was barely even a complete thought. He said, sure. And he gave me a, uh, old school, you know, photocopies of all the songs that I loved that he wrote that were, that we sang at Grace. And I brought them with me. And, and when Marcel started after a few weeks, Rob called and said, um, Hey, basically, what would you think about helping out with the youth? I'm like, mm, probably not. Um, but I've got a bunch of songs and whoever's going to do the music, I think they ought to do these because the music sucks, my opinion. And Rob's like, well, then you do it. You do the music. And somehow in my own naive stupidity, I said, fine. And I had a piece of crap guitar and a new like four chords and Rob introduced me to the rest of the worship team. There was one high schooler on the worship team that literally came over to my house and showed me how to hold my hand on the guitar for certain chords I did not know. And I showed up at practice and started to teach these brand new songs and learn the guitar at the same time. And I thought, yeah, this may be a last for, you know, a couple weeks until they boot me out. But that turned into a few months. It turned into a year, turned into a job and turned into the next four years of my life where we made records and, you know, um, and the, that music, Scott's music and the music that we were beginning to write became um, an intricate part of, of 
what was mine to carry in the world. And what was kind of beautiful about it is that the whole time, I don't know how he did it, but Scott just had, was quietly believing in my potential, saying without saying it, you can do it, and letting go of the fact that I didn't know what I was doing. And I would even change songs. If I found the melody a little too hard, the guitar part a little too hard, I'd just change it, you know, because I couldn't actually play it, you know. Um, I was learning to be, you know, a, a musician live, which I, I don't recommend. Um, but I, I might even say more than that, that the, that the songs, playing those songs was like being in conversation with Scott himself. And his way of being in the world. And that's maybe how I want to end. A mentor is somebody whose way of being in the world is, is needed and meaningful and beautiful and calls forth your own unique way of being in the world. And there's a relationship. In, in other words, his way of being in the world awakens the capacities that you already have, that you need to live into. And I don't know. I mean, that was a... Um, a 15-year ongoing relationship. Scott eventually came came up to Michigan and, and helped us record some of these songs And um, when I made records for Mars Hill. And um, it was a beautiful relationship. And he was such a complex and wonderful person. He introduced me to Tom Waits and to St. Augustine. Um, and he died two years ago, just this past August, tragically, of a heart attack on a bike ride. And it was a blow. I wanted to make a podcast afterwards, and I really couldn't. I can barely even talk about Scott now without, um, you know, feeling the tears coming up. Just such a loss, such a beautiful person, and such a mentor in my own life. And if, and sometimes I can even feel him, you know, in a way whispering, "Keep going, keep embodying, keep digging." Um, the very last thing he sent me via email was um, a speech that he gave and uh, a graduation speech. He was a rhetorician by <laughs> training and um, taught in some classical schools. And um, he was talking about the symbol of retreating to the cave or standing in the marketplace on a, uh, you know, on a box having something to say. And he was saying something like, at times in my life, I've spent more time in the cave than in the, than in the public sphere. But the tension is absolutely necessary. And in a way, he was saying, I'm, I'm learning to stand more in the city square. And he, I think he sent that to me to encourage, encourage me to stand in the, in the city square that I find find myself in and try to say something that's true. Having not lost contact with the cave, in other words, go into the cave, go into, into the depth of your own soul and find out. Maybe I could even say of Scott at this point, he was a person that embodied a fair amount of paradox between the sacred and the ordinary and between the ancient and the contemporary. He seemed to be able to hold poles and, and enjoy the, the tension of opposites. And he did it with such grace. And 
I, I don't know, I, maybe I just want to say at this point how grateful I am for his presence. And there's something strange about his presence, too, because it seems to transcend death. I mean, uh, I can still, you know, sense his influence on my life, even though he's not here. And I don't know, I guess I'm speaking a, a bit about a, about a mystery here. And maybe, maybe our best uh, mentors uh, transcend this thing we call life, the luminous pause between two great mysteries. That's a line from, from Carl Jung. So, um, you know, I'd like to end with a, a rabbinic story, but maybe I just want to add a PS at this point. Most of the stories that I've shared have been focused on the transition in my life from the struggle from transitioning from an adolescent to an adult and, you know, high school and college and, and, and graduation, just in terms of time sequence and, and the kind of mentors that came into my life, uh, during, during those seasons. But I think just as a PS, let's, Let's also discuss maybe what we might call second half of life mentors, just briefly, because I think there's a difference. Um, in the first half of life, I maybe would have even said I wasn't even aware that I was being mentored. <laughs> in the second half of life, I think there's a little more consciousness. And, and, and it's probably worth noting, uh, everyone that I've mentioned so far, have, these have been people that I've interacted with, you know, um, not, not sort of distant mentors like writers or thinkers, but they're also worth mentioning. And, and especially coming up um, into adulthood, people like uh, Richard Rohr and Robert Bly and Mary Oliver and David White and Joseph Campbell, particularly Joseph Campbell in these uh, DVD series that he did with Bill Moyers, which I highly recommend now. I think they're available on Netflix. Um, that really changed my life. Um, there was something about the way I was engaging with these writers that was different. That was much more like a mentorship or even apprenticeship might be the right word for it than just a curiosity or gathering information. I mean, the amount of hours that I spent listening to, to Richard Rohr on my iPod. And what was I listening for? I mean, even after I had heard the one-liners, and he's got great one-liners, and kind of heard the, why was I listening to them again? And my sense is because it was the way he was bringing these teachings forward, back to what I was saying before, his way of being in the world. There was something about his way of being in the world. I think about Joseph Campbell in the same way. Poets are a little more mysterious, like Mary Oliver. I have a sense that her way of being in the world, that, that her poems... As beautiful as the lines are, it's the way she's carrying them into the world that I find so attractive. And, and to, so to say something about apprenticeship or mentorship through writers and thinkers, for me, it's been more like uh, cooking in a stew or in a cauldron of some sort. And 
rather than just sort of gaining information, like as if I could just take notes on things that Richard Rohr says, and then I'd have, have the data, and I'd be able to turn that around in some way. It's actually much more like um, being cooked <laughs> by someone. And, and I think bringing some consciousness to the question of what is this person's way of being in the world? I, I, I keep emphasizing that, but it's such an interesting question to me. How are they carrying what, what is theirs to carry? And trying to get clear about that. And then I think transitioning to the next question is, which is something like, what is my way of, of being in the world? What is mine to carry and, and how am I to carry it? See, I think that's, that's um, the kind of mysterious uh, undercurrent of the mentor-mentee relationship. The mentor is, is, has found his or her way of carrying their tasks, their soul, um, which is calling forth and ringing a bell, an internal bell that is calling forth the same within you. And, and what is mine to carry? You know, you've probably heard me say uh, this St. Francis line, which will not leave me alone. And, and I think I first heard it from Richard Rohr, in fact, which was, I have done what is mine to do. Now you must, must do what is yours to do. See, that's the mentor telling the truth on his or her deathbed. I have done what is mine to do. Now you must do what is yours to do. And, um, and so I, maybe there is something like uh, a second half of life mentorship or mentorships that feels more like apprenticeship. I got that word from Bill Plotkin. And in fact, Bill Plotkin has been one of those people in my life. I mean, about the time I was leaving um, traditional uh, evangelical Christianity and, and, and leaving my job as a megachurch pastor, um, I started to bump into the work of Bill Plotkin, largely through Richard Rohr, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and I started reading his books and eventually signed up for for an animus program, Animus, animus Valley Institute in Colorado. And, and I remember I'm at 9,000 feet in New Mexico and I'm really scared out of my mind because I don't recognize anything of what's happening. This is new language, new territory. And the, the very first morning we were asked to come to breakfast and we, if we had any dreams, just to share them at the table with whatever guide was present. And it happened to be, I happened to sit at the same table um, with Bill Plotkin. And I said, well, I had a, you know, a, a couple dreams, which is totally unusual for me. I would have said, I don't dream, but simply sort of being asked to remember, I was sort of, uh, I remembered. So I tried to pick the, the least interesting dream. <laughs> like, so, cause I didn't know what I was getting myself into. So I picked the least interesting dream to, to, to my mind, to my ego. And uh, I began to share my dream, and, and I found myself falling down the rabbit hole, you know, just, I closed my eyes, and I entered the world of the unconscious in a way that I never had before, and, and when it was over, I had this feeling, like, whatever this is, this is important. Whatever this is, I would like to be near. And also that the dual feeling of, and, and I don't know what I'm talking about. This is, this is so new. I have no idea what this is. And that began to chart. Um, I was going to say chart a new course, but maybe continue a thread that had been there all along. That started with my, my uh, attraction to the Odyssey. <laughs> and, um, you know, the mysterious thread that is the current of your life. 
You know, that's what I'm talking about. And, and, and my involvement with Animus Valley Institute up to the present, I'm in their guide training program now, has felt like an apprenticeship, not only to Bill Plotkin, but to the other guides. Uh, how are they carrying what is theirs to carry in the world? And um, an apprenticeship feels like, um, what's the right word for it? Like learning a craft, I think. Like learning a craft um, so that you can... Um, so that, so that you can engage in the craft in the way that, that it, only you can. That's maybe the best way to say it. Um, I mean, I, I, I was reading some Carl Jung, and he said that the thing about what I'm doing is that it, this is not a school. It's not a school of psychology. It's a guild. And that's the way Animus Valley Institute feels. It's a guild where, where we're learning to be practitioners by practicing. <laughs> So maybe my point is that at this point is just maybe just to raise a question. What does apprenticeship look like in the second half of life where you're bringing more consciousness to the kind of mentor-mentee relationships that you're in and you're bringing more consciousness to the craft and you're bringing more consciousness to the way you might hold it? So those are maybe some questions here. So let's end with, um, with a story from Rabbi Zusha. So Rabbi Zusha is a, was a Hasidic rabbi, and we he never wrote a word, as many great rabbis, um, including Jesus, never did. He never intended to write a word. He could have, I suppose, but um, every so everything we know about Rabbi Zusha comes from his disciples. And um, so he's on his deathbed, and he's weeping and grieving and crying, and this really confuses his disciples, and his disciples are thinking, what the heck? I mean, he's such a righteous man. Why are you crying? Are you afraid? You, don't worry. You'll be fine. You'll be welcomed in the world to come, as it's, as it's called in, in uh, Judaism. And so his disciples say, you know, Rabbi, you know, cheer up. You were, you were almost as wise as Moses and as kind as Abraham. And in his tears, Rabbi Zusha says this, I am not worried that in the world to come, I will be asked, why were you not more like Moses? Why were you not more like Abraham? What I'm afraid of is that I'm going to be asked, why were you not more like Rabbi Zusha? Which I think powerfully in my mind summarizes what I'm talking about, that ultimately the calling and ultimately the relationship between mentor and mentee, between the mentors in your life um, and who you are, is about you becoming you. Peace.